Please bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are all ignorant of your word, your truth, your majesty, your mercy. We have tried so long to live our lives apart from your truth, apart from your power. Forgive us. Lord, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Teach us, we pray, by your spirit. Ignite in us a new appetite. Awaken a new appetite for Christ, for his life and death and resurrection and ascension, for his ministry to us by his Holy Spirit, for his truth, for his mercy. Wet our appetites this morning, we pray. May we be satisfied, and yet may we long all the more for greater knowledge, for greater truth. Teach us now. Feed your sheep, we pray, and bless your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. At 1 a.m. in New York City, singer-songwriter Paul Anka sat down at an old typewriter, and by sunrise he had hammered out what would become Frank Sinatra's signature croon tune. Anka recalls the experience of his lyric epiphany. He says, I said, if Frank were writing this, Frank Sinatra were writing this, what would he say? And I started metaphorically, and now the end is near. I'd read a lot of periodicals and noticed Everything was my this and my that. We were in the me generation, and Frank became the guy for me to use to say that, end quote. Sinatra recorded his version of that song in a single take on December 30th, 1968, though his daughter Tina said Frank came to hate the song. He didn't like it. That song stuck, and he couldn't get it off his shoe. He always thought that song was self-serving and self-indulgent, she said, of her dad. Songs, whether we like to admit it or not, both express and influence the spirit of the age. It's been said that since 2005, Frank Sinatra's song has been the number one most requested song at funerals in the United Kingdom. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case, of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way, my way. The last verse concludes in a pretty reflective way on what it means to be human. For what is man and what has he got? If not himself, then he has not, doesn't have anything. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. That song, still today, 54 years later, is how so many men want to be remembered at their funeral. And though the me generation has run its course, the most popular products in the tech market still use phrases like my documents, my music, and of course, the iPod, the iPad, and the iPhone have achieved iconic status precisely because they emphasize the individual. It's the same with the 1969 Cynthia Well and Barry Mann tune, Make Your Own Kind of Music. Some of you have heard this recently. Nobody can tell you there's only one song worth singing. Nobody can tell you there's only one song worth singing. They may try and sell you because it hangs them up to see someone like you. But you got to... Make your own kind of music. Sing your own special song. Make your own kind of music, even if nobody else sings along. That song now plays in a Volkswagen Tiguan commercial that features a gay couple who have adopted an unruly sheep as a pet. 
And as the new family unit drives by a herd of sheep, the tagline that you hear is, life gets bigger when you break from the herd. Yeah, purchase a Tiguan so that you can express that you are making your own kind of music in life, breaking from the herd in your sexuality like a sheep moving on from life determined by the flock. Spirit of the age. This fascination with the self, with self-determination, with, forgive, with forging my own path in life, with creating a new identity for myself, making my own kind of music in my life. It's become such a well-polished lens for looking at life that we barely realize we're wearing those glasses when we look at Jesus as we read of him in Scripture. We look at a passage like John 18 that we're going to study this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, John 18, and we just think Jesus is doing his own thing his own way. Jesus becomes, retrospectively, the iconic religious figure who made his own kind of music. Oh, Jesus is doing his thing. See, even Jesus did it. He was just being his own man before his own time. That's why it's so alarming to us when we read him saying, should I not certainly drink the cup that my father has given me? Now, the Sinatra generation doesn't know what to do with that one, do they? If your worldview is built on my way, and you see Jesus saying that? It is true that Jesus laid down his life on his own terms. That's the main point of our text this morning. But he did that precisely to obey the command and satisfy the will of his Father in heaven. He was obeying authority even as he laid down his own life on his own terms. We're going to tell the story this morning of the text. We'll give the point and we'll make some application at the end. Jesus has just finished praying for his disciples and those who will believe in their preaching after he leaves. And now he leads them across the Kidron Brook or Valley, which is probably dry at Passover time in April. He leads them into a garden where Jesus had taken them a hundred times before for quiet instruction. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the, fa- he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers 
had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to the Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. So Jesus leads his disciples out to that little garden across the Kidron Brook. He doesn't name the garden, but he does name the brook Kidron And this is the only time in the whole New Testament where that brook is named, probably because here it has biblical significance. The Kidron Brook is the same one David crossed on his way out into exile from Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15. Remember Absalom's rebellion? Absalom whips up discontentment with David, so much so that he has to leave town. He gets kicked out of his own kingdom. Because of the betrayal of his own son, if John means to evoke David crossing the Kidron, then it would be an implicit affirmation from John, Jesus is the son of David. He's being rejected as king by a betrayal of one of his own, Judas, just as David was betrayed by his son, Absalom, and in the same place. Verses 2 to 3, Judas knew where this garden was since Jesus had gathered his disciples there lots of times before. And Judas abuses that knowledge by leading the other soldiers and officers right to it. It's nighttime, so they come with lanterns and lamps, and they have hostile intent and probably fearful hearts because they know what Jesus is capable of. So they bring weapons just in case things go sideways on them. It's unclear whether this band of soldiers is a literal cohort of 600 Roman military soldiers or whether it's just a partial detachment from a Roman cohort or whether it's just a militarized detail from the Jewish temple police who were using the same terminology for their groups at the time. Regardless, they're not seeking Jesus because they want to hear him teach them. They're not seeking a lesson. They're not seeking a Sunday school. They're not seeking a Bible study. They're seeking to teach him a lesson. But in verse 4, Jesus is not phased. In fact, precisely because Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him, he was aware. He knew. He knew what was coming. And precisely because he knew what was coming, he did not try to run and hide. Nor does he wait for them to find him as if to delay the inevitable. No, Jesus goes out to initiate the encounter with them. And he encounters their weapons with his words. Now Judas and the soldiers had come to arrest Jesus. But notice, Jesus is the one who's interrogating them. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, literally, I am. I am. It's here that John notes in verse 5 that Judas, the one betraying him, was standing with them. It's almost as if this is Judas' last chance to switch back sides. This is Jesus' last testimony to Judas, and yet Judas remains on the soldier's side while Jesus is saying, I am, taking the divine name on himself. And so Judas probably fell down with the rest of the soldiers and servants in verse 6, when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They, all of them, probably Judas included. So notice the direction of all the characters. Jesus goes out towards them, speaks directly to them, asks them the questions. 
And when he does, they draw back and fall down. That's a power dynamic. Even though they're the ones who are packing the heat. They're the ones with the weapons. But all Jesus has to say is who he is, and they fall down. Jesus overpowers their weapons with his words. So who's really in control here? Who has the only authority that really matters? Jesus does. Doesn't matter who's carrying the gun. Doesn't matter who's bearing the sword. Doesn't matter who's swinging the mace. It is the Savior who is sovereign, not the soldiers, even over his own arrest and how it goes down. He's working a miracle of power by his own speech. Do not underestimate what's happening here. He speaks the divine name, and they cannot handle it. They fall. And he's doing this in the middle of his own arrest. Verse 7, it almost becomes comical. Again, therefore, Jesus asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now read that carefully. It's a little unclear, but from the way John is telling it, Jesus asked the second question while the soldiers may well still be on the ground. (laughs) They haven't gotten up yet. At least John hasn't narrated it. John never does tell us when the soldiers stood back up, but he leaves us wondering if Jesus is asking them the second question while they are still laying flat on their back on the ground. And John's word again makes you wonder if John sees a little humor in this in the sense that Jesus is the one in complete control of the encounter. Again, let's try this again, fellas. Whom do you seek? I'm still here. Notice Jesus didn't run away when they fell down. Whom do you seek? Verse 8, Jesus Answered them, I told you that I am, therefore, if you seek me, let these men, my disciples, go. Jesus emphasizes that he's already told them he's the one they're looking for. Now he commands them, in the middle of his own arrest, let these men go. Jesus is the one speaking with all authority, not the officers, not the soldiers. They come to arrest him, yet they're the ones falling backward to the ground, and Jesus is the one giving all the orders. Jesus is dictating the terms of his own arrest. And he is fulfilling his own promises in the process in verse 9. He demanded the release of his own disciples in order to fulfill the word that he has spoken himself back in chapter 6, that of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is keeping his own word here for his disciples. In the middle of his own detainment. Well, Peter doesn't like where all this is going. So in verse 10, Simon Peter, which is an interesting way to phrase it, John uses his old name because he's doing something from his old nature. (laughs) Having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the name of that servant was Malchus. Now, you may think that Peter looks very valiant here. But think about it for a minute. Peter Peter is not Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. He's not a swordsman. He he does not have that good an aim with the sword that he can be like, like, ha, cut off your ear. No, no, no. That's not intentional. There's no way that Peter is that good with a sword. He's a fisherman. Probably what happened was Peter made some wild, lunging, swinging motion that any Roman soldier would make fun of. Fisherman, got a sword, look out. And Malchus averts it and ends up just losing an ear. Peter's probably going for the jugular in some way. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of thing. It's not orderly, it's not professional. It's pathetic. And naming this servant is evidence of historical 
confidence. John's writing history here. And he says, and by the way, the name of the servant whose ear was cut off was Malchus. John's writing history. So he's looking at you at his reader, as his reader, like, hey, man, I was there. And if you're an early reader, reading while John is still alive, the import is, if you're still skeptical, go talk to Malchus and his posse. They were no friends of Jesus. They were on the opposite side. Malchus will give you the same earful of the same events. He'll tell you. Yeah. Jesus said to Peter in verse 11, put your sword back in its scabbard. The cup which the Father has given me, should I not certainly drink it? Once again, Peter is misguided in his own zeal. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong action. Admirable love for Jesus, but you're not doing it right. And once again, Jesus is speaking in the imperative, commanding people around him while he's the one being arrested. Yet Jesus clarifies that while he is exercising complete sovereignty over the terms of his own detention, he's submitting himself to a higher authority in what he is allowing to happen. He's going to drink the cup, he says. He's going to drink the cup that his father gave him. That cup is not the cup of fate. It's not the cup of karma. It's not even the cup of mere divine providence over his life. It's certainly not the cup of blessing from Psalm 16 or Psalm 23. My cup runneth over, different cup. This is the cup of the wine of God's wrath that the prophets had spoken of so many centuries before. That's what we had Isaiah 51 read earlier in the service. This is the cup of Psalm 75, 8. There is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. That's a cup of God's wrath punishing the wicked for their sin, making them drunk on his wrath. Same cup of Habakkuk 2.16, you will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. That is the cup that Jesus is going to drink. The cup of disgrace and shame over our sin. The cup of God's wrath over our sin that we deserved. Same cup God sent Jeremiah with in Jeremiah 25, 15. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. What a potent image. I'm going to make the wicked drink a kind of wine that will make them drunk and stagger on my wrath. You're going to drink this and you're not going to know what hit you. You won't know what day it is. That's the cup that Jesus is going to drink. For you, for me. Now, the way John uses the word so in verses 12 and 13, it makes you think that the only reason the soldiers are even able to cuff Jesus and lead him off to Annas is that Jesus has already decided to drink the cup that the Father gave him. He says this line to Peter Shouldn't I drink the cup? that the Father gives me, and John immediately says, so they took him. They took him because Jesus let them take him because he was resolved to undergo everything that they were about to throw at him because this was God's cup for him to drink. Now, the fact that they lead him to Annas has caused a lot of confusion because Annas only served as high priest appointed by Quirinius from 6 to 15 A.D. And it's later than that now, a lot later. Now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, held the office formally. I don't want us to get bogged down in the weeds here, but net-net, the high priesthood in Jewish tradition was understood to be a lifetime appointment. Kind of like you have lifetime elders in churches today. You had lifetime high priests back then in Jewish tradition. But the Romans reserved the political right 
to depose and install high priests at will that they liked and thought would be loyal to the Romans. Annas himself was so influential. He's Caiaphas's father-in-law. Annas was so influential that the Jewish historian Josephus said that he had five sons who all served in the high priesthood after him. Annas is a player. He is a power broker for his family. The Romans like him. Annas knows it. And his sons are all benefiting from his power. If you were a citizen in Jerusalem, you would have known Annas's name. You would have probably been either a little respectful or a little afraid of him and everybody around him. He is a powerful man. So it makes sense that a band of Jewish temple officers and their police would think to take Jesus to Annas first for a preliminary hearing. Hey, we better let... Grandpa, <laughs> Grandpa High Priest, we better let him take a, take a look and a listen before we do anything. What does he think? Even though Caiaphas would have to be the one to officially sign off on a religious execution. In verse 14, John reminds us it was Caiaphas who counseled the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the nation. Man, is that not a loaded sentence. What Caiaphas meant by that back in John 11 is that it's better if we offer up Jesus to the Romans as a sacrificial lamb to save the dream of Israelite nationalism. Look, here, we're sacrificing this guy that causes you so much problem. Just let us have our land. But we already know that John thinks Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Caiaphas meant that sentence for evil against Jesus. Too bad, Jesus. You're the sacrificial lamb, and we're going to use you to appease the Romans. Caiaphas meant that as evil, but God meant it for good, both to Jesus and to us. Look again at how close you can come to articulating the real gospel and still remain an enemy of Jesus. You can import great theology into Caiaphas' sentence, and it will not save Caiaphas. Caiaphas thought Jesus needed to die. He just didn't know why. Verse 15, Simon Peter follows Jesus with another unnamed disciple, but the unnamed guy can go further with Jesus because he was known by the high priest and could drop his name to the servant girl keeping the door. It's unclear, to me at least, how the social and political dynamic works here. Probably this guy was higher up in society than Peter and John were as Galilean fishermen themselves, so he might have been able to pull some strings. Maybe he was just familiar with the priestly servants, though the text says he was known to Annas himself. Whatever the case, Peter is stuck outside the door until the other disciple vouches for him with the servant girl and tells her to let Peter into the high priest's courtyard with him. But the servant girl wants to make sure Peter is on the up and up. She's heard of this Jesus fellow. So she asks Peter a direct question. You're not also one of this man's disciples, right? Who am I letting in here? Now that also might be in addition to the unnamed guy, but it could just be an also as in, you're not another one of these, just like the rest of that farmer bunch that follows that guy around. You're not another one. You're not also, not you too. Regardless, she expects a negative answer from Peter, and that's exactly what Peter gives her. She doesn't want to let in any more of Jesus' disciples than she has to, and Peter just tells her what she wants to hear. So she's saying, look, I'm just checking, just doing my job. You're not loyal to Jesus, right? I am not, he says. Peter's answer there is the exact opposite of Jesus' threefold 
I am. In verses 5, 6, and 8. I mean, in Greek, there's even a nice little ring to the contrast. Jesus says, ego eimi, I am. Peter says, uk eimi, I am not. You can hardly miss it. John wants you to get it. Peter is saying the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's not testifying. Jesus is testifying. Verse 18, the servants and soldiers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold there at night. So they were standing around, thawing out. And look where Peter is, standing right there with him, warming himself. Peter is now standing around with the same servants and soldiers who had just been led by Judas to arrest Jesus. Peter's looking out for number one, just like the rest of the world. Time to get toasty. Cold out here. While Jesus is about to go down for a crime he didn't commit. That's what's cold. Weather is not the only thing that's cold that night. Peter's heart is cold. Verse 19 to 21, so the chief priests asked Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Again, Peter had just denied being Jesus' disciple. I am not. And now John shows you that the chief priest is asking Jesus about his disciples. But unlike Peter, Jesus covers for his own. Verse 20, 21, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in a temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is not throwing his disciples under the bus there. He's diverting attention away from the disciples and towards all the Jewish crowds that had heard everything that he had been saying in the synagogues and in the temple for the last three years. He's covering for his disciples. They're asking him about his disciples, and he's deferring them to the crowds. Ask anybody. My teaching is common knowledge, public domain. Everybody and their brother knows what I taught. I'm not pulling any punches. And if we want to be technical, we could say that Jesus is even challenging them to call any witness they want. Look, you call the jury. You pick the witnesses. Pick anybody you want who's heard what I said. They'll tell you. And when he ends with, why do you ask me? He's not being snarky. I mean, if, if it were you and me, that would sound like, what are you asking me for? You know, like, like, hey, get off my back. That's not how he's asking it. He's making a point. You, got, you guys have been criticizing me for three years that I'm testifying in my own behalf and that if I witness about myself, my testimony is not true, John 8, and now all of a sudden you're willing to take my word for, for it? What gives? Come on. This is not how you have been operating. All of a sudden, you want to hear what I have to say for myself, only to use my words against me and condemn me based on my own testimony under the cover of night with nobody else around? Ah. <laughs> Let's just be clear. This is not due process. You guys know better than this. At least call witnesses from the crowds. Well, verse 22, a priestly servant on duty doesn't like the tone Jesus seems to be taking with his boss, so he gives Jesus a slap and a talking to. Is this how you answer the high priest? Hey, hey, this how you answer him? You better show some respect. Who do you think you're talking to? Now, friend, just appreciate the irony of that moment. The servant of the human high priest slaps the heavenly high priest for disrespecting the human high priest. That's about as meta as it gets. And John intends you to see that. Look at how upside down this is. Here Jesus is, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, offering as high priest the sacrifice of his own body, and the servant slaps him for it. And John wants you to say, 
Is that how you treat the heavenly high priest? Who do you think you're talking to? Whose face do you think you just slapped? Jesus answers this servant, if I spoke evil, testify to the evil. But if I spoke rightly, why did you hit me? That's a challenge to the justice of the prosecution. If you're going to hold me in contempt of court, then tell me how I held the court in contempt. And if not, then you're actually the one who should be held in contempt of court because you don't hit a defendant who has not been convicted. Well, Anna sees all this, but he can't do anything about it because he's not the one in office. Jesus, notice, is the one in handcuffs, but Annas is the one whose hands are tied because he doesn't have any power to do anything about it. He's retired. This is just an informal preliminary hearing. He has all this influence but no authority, so he sends Jesus in cuffs to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest, in office. I mean, you talk about a kangaroo court. This is a joke. Here, son... See you for dinner tomorrow. What? In verse 25 to 27, Simon Peter's standing there warming himself with the high priest's servants and soldiers, and they ask him again, expecting, again, a negative answer. You're not one of his, are you? I don't know how to take that question. It assumes a negative answer in Greek again, but human nature being what it is, it might just be a joking question. I mean, you can reconstruct that pretty easily, right? They watch Jesus led off in cuffs to Caiaphas. They turn to Peter and say with a kind of a smirk and a grin, you're not one of his, are you? Hope not. You better hope not. And Peter goes along to get along with another I am not. A second time directly contrasting with Jesus, I am. Peter is not what Jesus is. Now in verse 26, in the light of that fire, one of those servants becomes suspicious This servant was in the garden when Jesus was picked up for questioning. This servant was actually a cousin of Malchus, the guy who lost his ear to Peter's sword. And this servant now asks Peter the same question, but this time he expects a positive answer. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? I could have sworn you were there, man. Come on. I saw you, didn't I? You were there. And yet again, Peter denied it. At the first two questions, Peter tells them what they want to hear. Now he gaslights the cousin of the guy whose ear he cut off. Your eyes are playing tricks on you, bro. I'm not him. That's cold. And just then, A rooster crowed, just like Jesus had predicted a few hours ago in chapter 13, verse 38. You won't die for me. You're going to die for me, Peter. (laughs) You will deny me three times by sunrise, and then I will die for you. And that's how the passage ends. And the point is that Jesus laid down his life for us on his terms, not ours. Jesus laid down his life for us on his terms, not ours. And there is a world of instruction in that point. He knows all that's about to happen to him. And he still goes to the garden where he knows this is going to happen and initiates the encounter. He repels their weapons with his words. He asks the questions. He gives the commands. His enemies fall while he remains standing. He dictates the terms of his own arrest. He commands Peter to put away the sword. It's not man, but God who gave him this cup of judgment, and he will drink it. The high priest who prosecutes him had unknowingly prophesied Jesus' own sovereign purpose in dying. It is better for one man to die. He just didn't know why. Jesus prosecutes his own prosecutors for lack of evidence against him. He is in himself the true and heavenly high priest, now enduring the ultimate indignity from those he came to save. And all of this is happening with a cold-hearted humanity warming itself by the light of a charcoal fire.
And as soon as Peter is done denying him, a rooster crowed just like Jesus predicted. Jesus laid down his life for us on his terms, not ours. Or to use Jesus' own words, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. That's how it went down. Theological application. God, God is the one, Christian, who pours your cup. God the Father is the one who distributes all of our sorrows to us. By his sovereign wisdom and goodness and love. Jesus' cup was given to him by his Father, and your cup, brother, sister, is given to you from your heavenly Father. The difference is, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that the cup you drink is not the cup of his wrath, but the cup of his purifying providence to ready you for heaven. Your losses... And your crosses are straight from the hand of your loving Heavenly Father who already gave you His most precious gift in His Son, Christ Jesus. So whatever He has taken from you is in love because He has already given you the best. You've got to trust that. This is why we sing the kinds of songs we do in this church. Oh, Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evils overruling as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. You've got to be able to sing that. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time you wove, and always dews of sorrow were lustered with your love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. God oft gives me days of gladness. Shall I grieve if he gives seasons too of sadness? God is good and tempers ever. All my ill, and he will wholly leave me. Never! My times of sorrow and of joy, great God, are in thy hand. My choicest comforts come from thee and go at thy command. If thou should take them all away, yet would I not repine, I wouldn't complain. Before they were possessed by me, they were entirely thine. Here perfect bliss can never be found. The honey is mixed with gall. But midst changing scenes and dying friends, be thou my all in all. Is that how you think about your life? Is that how you think about your sorrows, your cup? Friend, there will come a time in your life, if it has not arrived already, when you will need the lines from such songs to console you and to counsel you. You cannot sugarcoat the Christian life with the unrelenting, saccharine lyrics of the happy, clappy parade. It will disappoint you. You don't always feel like that. You feel your soul enters the minor key regularly. What are you going to sing then? The happy clappy parade will manipulate your emotions with swelling crescendos and drum fills. Not that drums are a sin. I like drum fills. But they will not ballast or stabilize your soul through the storms of suffering and sorrow. 
if all your heart is moved by is merely the music, you will waver. When did Noah build the ark? Before the rain. Before the rain. When do you need songs that express confidence in God during sorrows? Before the sorrows hit. Some of you are going through it right now. You've lost somebody very dear. You've had your hopes raised only to suffer bitter disappointment. You're in a prolonged season of difficulty or confusion or sickness or sleeplessness. And it is God, it is God who has poured that cup for you, Christian. That didn't happen on accident. And you can drink it with the same calm and confidence of Jesus if you trust that your heavenly Father poured it for your eternal good in union with your saving King Jesus and that he will raise you up again from the dark night of the soul. That's what it means to suffer and sorrow like a Christian. Like a Christian. But this, of course, also applies to Jesus himself. Jesus is what we are not so that we might become what we were not. The contrast between Annas and High. And as the high priest and Jesus as the high priest is intentional. Jesus is the true and ultimate high priest. He offers his own body in our place for our sins on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And now that he has done that, all who trust him have become a kingdom of priests, mediating God's message of salvation to the world by preaching Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And the contrast between Jesus saying, I am, and Peter saying, I am not, that also is intentional. Jesus is sovereign. We are not. Jesus bears perfect witness. We do not. Jesus is valiant for God's truth. We are not. Jesus is powerful. We are not. Jesus fears no man. We do fear man. Jesus is, as our second Adam, everything we were unwilling and unable to be for ourselves. He is the voluntary sacrifice the willing substitute who paid the penalty for our sins. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own will. His sacrifice is what defines love. His sacrifice is what defines love. Remember that. Love is not love. Love is love is not a true statement. Get it out of your mind. In this is love, John says, 1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God. Not that we even know how to love God or define what loving God means or looks like. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. Not everything people call love is love. You cannot define love biblically, you see, without defining it in terms of what Jesus did to cover over our sin. The Bible defines love in terms of Jesus enduring all of God's righteous wrath over all the sins of all of his people who would ever turn and trust him. That's love. So you see, love does not redefine sin and define it away so that it doesn't have to be dealt with at all. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't lie. Nor does love ignore sin, just admit that it's there but doesn't ever mention it. Love atones for sin. Love covers sin. Love 
redirects God's wrath at you about your sins so that it comes down on Jesus instead. That's what love does. And that is the God of the Bible. That is how God loves us. So that sinners can quit loving our sins and start loving the Savior who died for us. That's love. Application to Christ, Jesus sovereignly volunteers himself to die for us. That's what you should think. Jesus sovereignly volunteers himself to die for us. He comes out to meet those who come looking to arrest and execute him, just like he came down from heaven, so he goes out to meet his enemies as they come to arrest him and crucify him. He stands while his enemies fall. In fact, Matthew Henry noticed that when the crowds came to... This is great. This is why you should read the Puritans. When the crowds came to crown him king, Jesus hid himself in John 6. Where did he go? He gave us all that bread. Let's make him king. Ah, We can't find him now. But when the soldiers came to kill him, Jesus comes out to meet him. Jesus did not die against his will. He chose to die for us. He laid down his life in our place as a substitute penalty for our sins, which leads us to meditate on the gospel itself. Jesus died on behalf of his people. It is indeed better, as Caiaphas said, that one man should die on behalf of the people. Caiaphas just spoke far better than he knew. To Caiaphas, it would have been enough of a good news gospel for Jesus to die and stay dead so that the nation of Israel might continue as it was. But that was not enough of a gospel for God. Or for Jesus. God had a greater salvation in mind. Jesus did not die for a political nation. He died for a people from every language and every nation. He's gathering gathering them into the church. Jesus died not to save Israel from Rome, but to save the international church from God's wrath over sin. I want to make a public application here. Humanity seeks Jesus only to interrogate him in the light of human reason and hostility. You see how these soldiers come to Jesus? Lamps, torches, weapons. John has already called Jesus the light of the world. Jesus is what makes sense of reality and humanity as we find it. And yet you see how unbelievers misuse knowledge of Jesus just like Judas did only to betray him? Well, Judas knows where the place is and he leads Jesus' enemies right there misused his knowledge, used his knowledge against Jesus. They seek him with their own lamps and weapons. The human heart still today weaponizes knowledge against Jesus. Whatever light humanity thinks it has, it uses to guide them on their way to arresting and executing Jesus, even today. Whether it's reason or science or philosophy sociology, history, even religion. The world does not seek Jesus to listen to him. The world seeks Jesus to silence him. The priests and leaders, the servants and soldiers had already made up their minds about Jesus before they ever sought him here in the garden. They didn't come to be taught by Jesus. They came to teach him a lesson. And so today, many of our leading thinkers have decided against Jesus in light of their word, not his But Christ's Spirit can bring repentance even to such a soul. And that is the challenge of faith. But we find humanity selfishly indifferent at best to Jesus' suffering for us. Or as J.C. Ryle said, Jesus died unasked and unthanked. Nobody asked him to die. And when he died, nobody thanked him. Look at how impressive Jesus is in this garden. They come to arrest him. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Suddenly they're repelled back down by a pulse of divine omnipotence. They experience a miracle in their own bodies. And it is altogether lost on them. Look at how you can waste experience. Oh, these people had a wonderful worship experience in the garden. They should have. 
They had a power encounter with Jesus. They lost the power encounter. And they get up and go on along their business of arresting him as if nothing happened. That's amazing. Or look at the servants of Peter warming themselves by a charcoal fire while Jesus is interrogated by religious hypocrites. Heaven comes to earth, earth rejects heaven, and life goes on that night. Hey, somebody make a fire. It's freezing out here. Sinner, this is your wake-up call. Quit your indifference to Jesus. Some people spend their whole life warming themselves by that charcoal fire while Jesus has given his life to atone for your sins. And you can think of nothing more comforting than getting warm. You are the soldier. You are the servant warming yourself by that fire while Jesus endured the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And Christian, since Jesus laid down his life for us, John says we ought to also lay down our lives for him and for each other. John says, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the measure of love. This is the evidence of your regeneration and conversion. This is the metric of Christ's likeness. Do you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters here in the church? I know you can't do it for every single Christian in the world. You can't do it for every single Christian in Chicagoland or even in Elgin. But what about here? What about the people you know? Do you lay down your life for these people? Do you lay anything down for them? Do you lay down your life to attend with us, to pray with us, to serve with us, to give and be given to, to love and to be loved, to speak words of wisdom and love that edify each other, to hear somebody else speaking wisdom to you? Or is all this just going in one ear and out the other? And you just think, well, I'll just got to come back next week because that's just what I do. And I'll expect everybody else to lay down their lives for me. But as soon as somebody expects me to lay my life down for them, I'm offended. Hey, how could you possibly expect me? Don't you know I'm busy? Don't you know I'm tired? Don't you know I don't have that much energy? Don't you know I'm sad? Oh, don't you know Jesus was sad and tired and lonely and mistreated? and ignored, and unloved, and undefended. Do you inconvenience yourself for the building up of the church and for the good of other Christians here? Do you keep the church at arm's length so that you can live your life on your terms rather than living on Jesus' terms? See, being a Christian is not about keeping up appearances. If, the, if that's what you're doing here, I don't know what to tell you, but it's not doing you any good with God. Being a Christian is about laying down your life for Christ's people as Jesus laid down his life for us. And then you find your life in laying down your life for others. But how does Peter's denial relate to Paul's warning to Timothy that we read earlier, that if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. I mean, it looks like Peter denied Jesus here three times. And yet Jesus did not deny him. We can talk about this more tonight. But the brief answer is that in 2 Timothy 2.12, what Paul means by deny is final apostasy. If we end up denying him, it's in the future tense. The opposite of enduring, which is what he was talking about. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, however, if we don't endure, he will deny us. Peter did not deny Jesus in that way. Peter recovered and endured even though he denied knowing Jesus three times in one night. Peter's denials are a better example of what Paul says in the next line of 2 Timothy 2, 2 or 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
Peter was faithless. Three times he was faithless. But Peter did not commit final apostasy. He repented of his faithlessness, and Jesus remained faithful to him. Final application. Christian, Jesus can redeem your regrets as he redeemed Peter's. Peter was warming himself, you'll notice, by a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus a third time and heard that rooster crow. Yet when Jesus arose from the dead and provided a catch of 153 fish for the disciples in John 21, what did Peter see when he walked up from the boat to the beach? He saw a charcoal fire. He saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. By who? Who made that fire? Who put out those fish and bread? It was Jesus. Can you imagine that? Man, that is so thoughtful. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. That you have just caught. It's the most gracious way to put it ever. He just wanted to tell them where to put the net. Bring some of the fish you caught onto this charcoal fire and let's have breakfast together. I mean, you talk about redeeming an image for Peter. I bet after that night, Peter never wanted to see another charcoal fire again. And then Jesus rises from the dead and he makes him one. He says, hey, come here. I want to eat with you right here. I want to redeem that thing that you associate with your betrayals, and I'm going to reinstate you right here. Look at how thoughtful Jesus is to his failing and faltering people. How gracious is that? How merciful. Christian, I don't know all the losses that you have endured, the sins you've committed, the crosses you've borne. I don't know your most bitter regrets from your failures in the past, but Jesus knows them. Jesus knows them. And he can redeem it all for you in ways that you may never even dare to hope. So isn't it worth at least asking him in prayer to redeem it? He redeemed Peter's failures and regrets in life and ministry. He can redeem yours too. Ask him to redeem the ways you've sinned against him. Ask him to redeem all the ways that you have failed him, all your losses, all your sorrows, for his glory and your good. Look at how Jesus remembers. Look at how he cares. Look at how tender he is. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him a charcoal fire. Look at how he knows Peter. Look at how he knows just what he needs. Look at how he knows you, Christian. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at the lengths to which he goes to save you. On his own terms. By his own will. This friend, this is a Jesus you can trust. And he laid down his life on his terms. He drank the cup that his father gave him for us and for our salvation. And that, that is undeniable. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You are great and you are good for engaging our hearts with the text of Scripture, with the lives of the saints, with your actions, your saving actions in history for your people to instruct and encourage us to tenderly appeal to our hearts like this. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You laid down your life. No one took it from you. You laid it down of your own initiative, on your own terms, for us and for our salvation. All praise be to you. Take our lives. Make of them what you will. 
for your glory. May we lay down our lives for you and for one another in this church that Jesus might be magnified and known as worthy of all sacrifice, all glory, all honor, all praise, all inconvenience that others might know him to be the same. For his sake we pray. Amen.